The time has come to get ready for the 2022 World Cup. And what better way to prepare than by revisiting the World Cup's most amazing goals? I'm Brian Phillips. I'm making a podcast about the history of the Men's World Cup, told through the stories of 22 iconic goals. The show's called 22 Goals. It's out now on the Ringer Podcast Network, and we're having so much fun. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life, with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right, welcome back, you guys. This is a, such an honor and a pleasure uh, I've been a fan of this man's writing for a while. He's a great film critic. His observations on film are really, really, um, you know, his voice is just a voice that we always need out there talking about culture. I guess it's a better way to put it. You know, he's a longtime host of the treatment. And he has this documentary, which I have to use the word breathtaking because it took my breath away in so many different ways. And we're going to talk about that. And you'll understand what I mean by it. And it's called Is That Black Enough For You? Which is a great title. And it's on Netflix right now. Mr. Elvis Mitchell, welcome to Black on the Air, my friend. It's so great to see you. It is great to see you. Thank you for doing that. And I've always wanted to hear you use the words breathtaking. It is breathtaking. What was breathtaking about it? It takes my breath away because here's here's what takes my breath away. It um, hammers home how often and how much Black excellence has hidden in plain sight. And that's the part that I'm, I'm just, I have no words. I look at some of those things and it's every era. You can point to every era, you know, you even go take us back to the silence, you know, every era, black excellence is hiding in plain sight, or sometimes it's just hidden altogether, you know, in certain periods, but oftentimes it's hiding in plain sight. It's right there in the culture and the culture just treats it as if it, it doesn't exist and it never existed. And what's beautiful about your film is you show how long it's existed, you know, and how much it's been right beside us and people have just ignored it and looked the other way. That's my, that's my takeaway from your brilliant film. Wow. Um, <laughs> all, uh, thank you. It's good to be here. And I, I'm really speechless with myself. It's such really such beautifully spoken words. I mean, one of the things, and there's something I say in the documentary, mm -hmm. no, this is the way you think. So that's why I'm glad to be here with you. So I said that this kind of black card has always functioned as kind of a de facto underground economy. Mm-hmm. No, because if it's not being covered, you know that it's the old joke. If a tree falls in the forest and then nobody's there to report it, is it an event? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the way this culture, our culture has always existed, you know, right. that we get the discard to the mainstream and make it work for us. And and I wanted to use this film to, to talk about exactly what you're saying, that this 
threat, this vein of Black achievement has existed since the beginning of film. When did you first get the idea to do this? Was it something you've been thinking about for a while? Was it like, uh, you know, uh, I got to talk about these films? You know, what, what was when did you first get this idea? God, you know, really it came uh, like through several different ways. One of which the classic mm-hmm. thing of, I guess, like almost 25 years ago, those that book, uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, came out. A friend of mine yeah. got an early copy, and I just said, oh, well, that period, I can't wait to see how he brings in Gordon Parks. And yes. my friend goes, oh, there's no black people in the book. Oh, of yeah. course there's not, because black people didn't exist in that period, unless they're black exploitation movies, you know, the same kind of reductive thing that your entire act in life has been about combating Larry. Well, it's funny that I actually wrote down here that this movie is, is like the black easy riders of raging bulls. I actually wrote that exact thing down, you know, cause I agree with you. It was a fantastic book bereft of black. You know? It's like, you know, <laughs> if you're writing about the Washington generals instead of the Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah. <laughs> I get to all right. on the court together, but is there somebody doing something? That's a lot harder yeah. than what the other team is doing. So anyway, I thought, well, this is interesting. And then that same year yeah. was the first year I'd gone to Sundance, mm-hmm. arranged the Hughes brothers there. And they were there with, right. with American Pimp, which hadn't been seen mm-hmm. yet. But, you know, when people saw it, they were fleeing because, oh, well, this isn't Pimp My Ride. This is about pimps. But before the movie premiered, I was talking to them because mm-hmm. they were all from Detroit. And I'd said, well, the one of the things I always loved about Dead Presidents is you're using... Mm-hmm walk on by by as a case because that's always felt to me like a piece of movie music in fact and then albert and i end up saying this like together like in unison like you know jinx kind of a thing uh that isaac Hayes stole walk on by from uh ennio morricone's music from once upon a time in the west and two things kind of mm-hmm. coming around at the same time made me think oh huh. first of all having that conversation with albert hughes made me think i'm not the only person who thinks this way that there are yes. lots of people who notice what's not being said. And that there's this always been this conversation between black culture and forgive me for using this term, the mainstream culture and the black mm-hmm. contributions so often go ignored. And I thought, let me right. try and do this as a book. And then I was at dinner with Tony Morrison and I still don't believe this either, but so we were at dinner and I had mentioned I wanted to do this book. And she said, well, I'll write the introduction. And I'm not exaggerating. I swear to you, I turned around and looked to see who just walked into the restaurant because I know she cannot possibly be talking to me. Wait, but you just throw off. I was just having dinner with Tony Morrison. <laughs> just like, yeah. You know, one of my many dinners with Tony Morrison. It's yeah. actually, it's weird. We got to be friends. And, and yeah. uh, but still, I was like doing this kind of pinch myself and sneaking selfies just so I had some, you know, visual confirmation right. of this. And she said, I'll, I'll write the introduction out okay. And then she just started talking. So I'm not mm-hmm. kidding. I just walked down and started grabbing napkins off table to write some of the stuff mm-hmm. down. I just thought, I want to have this, some of this stuff committed to paper. And then I wrote this synopsis, this, this outline for the book. I wrote a sample chapter, uh, mentioned that Tony's going to do the introduction and mm-hmm. turned down by every publisher in North America. I exaggerate. They wow. turned it down twice. So, um, then I just, I was thinking, this was talking to one of these kind of name droppery things, but I was talking to Steve McQueen. He just said, oh, that's not a book. And I just was thinking, yeah, you're right. It's not a book. He goes, no, it's a documentary. And I go, oh, mm. oh, oh. And still, you know, I wasn't able to get that set up. So 
I used to run the film program with the LA County Museum, and we had done mm-hmm. an event for the Nick, the Steven Soderbergh uh, series with Clive Owen and, and, and Andre Holland. And so I was talking to Steven at this sort of cocktail thing they were doing after, and he says to me, so what exactly is it you're doing with your career anyway? <laughs> what exactly is it? That you're doing with your career. Well, I don't know, Stephen. What am I doing? That's what I said. There's few of you that say I have a career, but um, I've been trying to do this thing for a long time. And this is usually a point where people kind of go, oh, that's great. My Uber's here. And they leave. And he just goes, that's true. "Um, Well, that's a great idea. I can cash flow it for you. And I just say, oh my God, that's incredible. I have no idea what that means. He goes, oh, okay. And he explained to me what that meant because why don't we go set this up somewhere so we're not waiting to sell mm-hmm. this and for you to get paid. Let's get you the deal going so you can get paid from the outset. Wow. What a great, what a great thing for him to do. That's awesome. Oh, absolutely. He just it's one of these things where people would often say, That sounds really interesting, but he completely saw and he yeah. said, This is a slam dunk. He said, as you're saying this, I realized that nobody's done this in this way before. And I go, Yeah, yeah. It, it seems crazy to me too. It seemed to me like it's like why is the way I pick up this hundred dollar bill on the subway? What's wrong with it? And for somebody like Soderbergh, who you know is a real lover of film, you know? Yeah. But so many claim to be that and turn out to not be that. So he just said, let's go and set it up. So we go to a few places and I write up dutifully like the 10 page sort of summary of what it's going to be, breaking down what clips I want to use and everything. And we go to this one place and you know, everybody's like happy to see me and whatever. And then they, after about 20 minutes of me talking about what the film is, they turn to Steven and go, so when are you going to have time to direct this? Now, keep in mind, this is in the before times they realized that black people could direct movies about black people. <laughs> 2018. I was going to say, wait, wait, that was, yeah, but you're right. It, as sad as that is, it's so true. And it's only four years ago, but it was 2018. So even he's in a fury. He goes, I want to call you in an hour. And he calls me and goes, listen, I've talked to Fincher. You know David Fincher, right? Yeah, I know David. He goes, listen, I'm going to bring Fincher on. Let's go get this thing going at Netflix because you got the keys to the car over there. And so I go to meet with David and he goes, oh, I know why you couldn't get this made. It's because it's about a bunch of black people. Let's go make it. Mm. It's just, it's, oh, so it's like, it really takes these two titans of the industry to get people to think, well, maybe this guy can make a documentary about something he's been writing about for 30 years. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. So mm-hmm. then that happens. Um, and the first thing we shoot um, ends up being we have to shoot a kind of a proof of concept just to show that I know what I'm doing behind the camera. Mm-hmm. So for Harry Belafonte. So we go to Harry's apartment and, you know, just to sort of further this sort of fate being against this project to some extent, the day we're in the van mm-hmm. to go to shoot at Harry's apartment is the day that Diane Carroll dies. Mm-hmm. And she was somebody who I'd met doing an event at LACMA. I told her about it. She was, oh my God, Tell me when you're doing this, I'm in. So wow. and I know that she and Harry were friends. And so we get to Harry's apartment and um, he says, so you hear about Diane Carroll? And we go, yeah. He goes, yeah, that's really too bad. She's a great person. Let's go to work. Oh, okay. You know, cause Harry is at that point 92. And I think he realizes let's just do this thing. How many more opportunities? But also, he doesn't do a lot of these kinds of interviews and I, I've known him a little bit over the years and know that there's this impish side that likes to pick at people that he doesn't really present mm-hmm. so much in public, but I want to get that on camera and then to show this really kind of aggressive intelligence that he has, this mm-hmm. self that's not 
egomaniacal or, 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 or solipsistic, but a sense of self that should, that's really self-awareness. And the, the point where we shoot yeah. the documentary or the interview, and by the way, my DP for that day was Steven Soderbergh. So I'm sitting there. That's amazing. Steven Soderbergh behind mm-hmm. me and Harry Belafonte in front of me thinking, one of these things doesn't belong here. So right, right. <laughs> we're shooting and Harry just, I uh, asked a question about him not working in the movie business and decision mm-hmm. he made because for me he was always the spine of this piece because people say harry belafonte they lump him in with sydney poitier because people tend to not know the film history and don't know that he chose not to make movies from 1959 till 1970 let's let's pause there for a second because i want people to realize that and part of what i appreciate in this film is there hasn't been a thorough telling of harry belafonte's career yet you know and i feel like uh why is that? And whenever I see things about him, it just, you know, I'm so excited because I feel like there's so many holes out there in terms of our understanding of 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 the things that he did. But I didn't even know this, that he willingly took a break from 1959 to 1971, I think it was, like 12 years or something like that. Yeah, exactly. From As a black man who wants to be a film star and was, you know, certainly to black audiences, you know, but he he certainly wasn't Sidney Poitier, but you know, you know, to willingly do that at a time when he's being offered roles, roles is crazy. It seems like, right? Can you think? When, I mean, between Harry and Sidney, they're two of the most astonishing cases in the history of American cinema. Uh, Harry Belafonte, who was at his physical peak at his prime in nineteen, beautiful, one of the most beautiful specimens ever on and film, glowing, and tra- also yeah. trained as an actor, as you mentioned, he trained with Walt. Right. and Marlon Brando and knew what he was. And in fact, I've always thought one of the reasons he became such a success as a singer performer is he's acting those songs out. Yeah, that's very interesting. I've always thought that. That's why those songs have been, a kind of an impact still to this very day. They don't feel dated at all. Carmen Jones is still an amazing, it's an amazing document, I should say. It know? is, but you keep in mind, remember yeah. Carmen Jones, Oliver Preminger is so threatened by Harry Belafonte, he does somebody yeah. else's voice. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, yeah. that's, it's yeah. crazy. So anyway, because he's trained to do this thing, this thing he's been built to do, that he's born to do, and to walk away from it for over a decade. And if you've ever seen this movie, Oz Against Tomorrow, when and there's a clip of it in the film. I didn't even know about it. I didn't even know about that film. Do you yeah. not love that scene where Richard Bright, Al Neary from The Godfather, in his first film role, walks up to the stage and hits on Harry Belafonte in 1959? You go, whoa. It's crazy. Well, once again, Elvis, let's pause, because these. this is what I mean by breathtaking. It's a revelation. First of all, there's a blatant gay moment. <laughs> A film, you know, that's so blatant. It's like, what's going on here? And there's and and it's not a joke either, you know. Like those types of things would have been jokes back then. But the underground nature of this whole thing, I'm like, how come so many of these films are just lost? Like they're not around. We don't hear about them, you know. Not only that, but in that scene, by the way, when I remember as a kid seeing the Godfather and going, that's the guy who hit on Harry Belafonte and Oz against tomorrow. The movie doesn't judge. Yeah. Richard Bright for doing that no. in the background no. is a bartender with no lines in the movie is Cicely Tyson. Yeah. It's the first film yeah. role for an actor who later wanted to do mash Wayne Rogers. It's this movie's yeah. crazy. Harry Belafonte trained to with Milt Jackson of the modern jazz quartet. So he could be convincing playing the vibes, which he is. Yeah. I mean, and, and also the movie treats him as this kind of sexual center of the universe 
who can't catch a break yeah. because he's black. I mean, the movie does. At one point, he's in an elevator, and this, the elevator operator hits on him. The elevator operator is played by this actor named Mel Stewart, who was later, like in All in the Family, is like the first Jefferson's member who, like, gets in fights with Archie Bunker. But it's right. an incredible movie called Trick Baby, um, which I've always thought, I end up tracking down uh, the, the guy who like, wrote the adaptation. I thought, because it's, it's adapted from an Iceberg Slim book, I always thought that the, the first half of Trick Baby, the first third of the sets the thing into motion, is basically what the Sting is. Because if you remember the Sting, it's Robert Redford and Claude Earl Jones as con artists. He's yeah. killed in my head. And my, my friends, you know, cause junior high school or something and having sneaked to read that book, we thought, wouldn't it be cool for the end of the movie? It turns out that Robert Redford is Claude Earl Jones son. And he's been passing for kinds <laughs> 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 of things that you, as a person of color, you do, you know, we add our own narratives to these things sure. to fill in the blanks. Because one of the things that I learned from my grandmother, who I, I quote a couple of times in the film and she was, she ran a farm in the South, so it wasn't like she was educated or anything, but she... Where in the South? Where in the South? Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. Okay. And she mm-hmm. taught me to ask myself, what is missing? Mm-hmm. Which is, mm-hmm. you know, the way people like you and me work. It's critical thinking mm-hmm. and a kind of critical thinking and an ironic critical thinking. You have to bring the bear as a black observer for a popular culture. Yeah. And the, the, the movie... Um, it's a great historical document. You know, it's both an historical document and a personal essay, it seems to me. Um, but let's talk about the historical document of it all, because I find that fascinating, too, because I feel like Black film um, has gone through different stages and they all seem to be they they all get lost <laughs> you know, in some ways. Like I feel even the 70s is kind of lost right now, you know, but. Let's talk about some of the origins, you know, the Oscar Micheaux and how important black cinema was even in those days, in the beginning of film, you know, how it was very important in the, in the culture because we weren't represented hardly at all in those days unless we're being chased by the Klan and, you know, Birth of a Nation. Until maybe 20 years ago, we've always been told that the greatest film achievement in the history of cinema for the first 50 years was Birth of a Nation. You hear that? You go, wait a second, this is the institution, the creation, institutionalization, I mean to say, of all the tropes, all the stereotypes of black behavior, and also why white women have to be rescued from black men. I mean, that is being put up in movies. And Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States, went out to call this a great piece of art. I know. You know, Uh, and so when that's happening, it's like, oh, well, I guess... Donald Trump wasn't the first. But anyway, um, so you have this situation where it's being posited as this piece of art that offers this astonishingly racist point of view. Mm-hmm. This is what film is fomenting about people of color in its origins. But you also have filmmakers such as Alice Guy Blaché, who's making movies about people of color. And I always thought it's yeah. kind of wonderful if this woman who's putting black people on the screen and features for the first time mm-hmm. is that she's offered to, a chance to direct the first Tarzan movie. And she says, no, you have to think, you know, flesh your heart. And then, it, but there's still an audience of people of color to go see movies. And probably always this same thing we've been hearing about for years, that black people pres- consume popular culture in sort of much bigger numbers than their population, than our percentage of the population would suggest. It's 30%. It's a, it's a huge number. 
Uh, so mm-hmm. you think about that, you ask yourself, if this is, again, it's going back to the found money metaphor, if this is money sitting on the table, why aren't the studios making, you know, of, like doing the Negro League of Black Film, buying a chain of theaters to have in the South, and making movies for these audiences who want to see themselves? Mm-hmm. The answer is because they have contempt for this audience. It's funny, if you read the book, Mark Harris's terrific book, Five, uh, five Come Back, mm-hmm. five filmmakers who went over and shot footage, uh, documentary footage during World War II that include John Houston. I, I did, I saw the documentary in that Yeah, movie. well, you know, he has a, a memorandum from the Department of War, which is what the, the Defense Department was called in the, during World War II, and even they were chiding mm-hmm. Hollywood for being too racist. When the Department of War is saying the movie business is too racist, that gives you some idea. Well, what people have to know, too, is that Black men on screen for a long period of time were emasculated. You know, they couldn't be a threat to white women, first of all. And they also couldn't be a masculine threat to white men as well. You know, Um and so they were always these figures that were subservient, you know, they were, there was nothing sexual about them at all, you know, and the only place that existed was in black cinema that was done by, you know, by blacks in those days, which, you know, was like a revelation to black audiences. It's like, oh my God, we get to see ourselves, you know, as people who might be object of desire, you know, or that type of thing, especially for black men. Or people who just get through it. A- a competently managed day. Forget being a sexual threat. Yes, a competently managed day. This is a landmark achievement. And people such as Oscar Michaud and Spencer Williams, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. again, it really was like the Negro Leagues. They had to go raise the money. They wrote the movies. They often starred in the movies. Then they had to do the post-production on the film and then go out and book it in the chains of Negro theaters and take it around themselves because... They, they, if they didn't do this, these movies wouldn't be seen. So you have these white filmmakers who are making great films during the 30s and 40s. They don't have nearly the same amount of labor or, or psychological or economic burdens placed on them that black filmmakers do. So when one of the Oscar Michelle's films, I said, we well, you know some were great and some weren't, but the fact is he was making them and he didn't have to do nearly as many things. He had to do many more things rather than John Ford did or John Houston. Also, there there weren't the same resources, certainly, or, you know, structural resources, too. Because those people had, they were working in studios where it was an assembly line. You were a director, but you had working for you an editor who worked for the studio. Writers who worked for the studio. Cinematographers who worked for the studio. All you do is show up and direct and go home. Michaud and Williams and and Paul Williams and and Paulie Marshall and so many other of these filmmakers had to do that. And that's why... I want to make sure I include that clip from Bingo Long near the end of the film, because what the Negro Leagues were doing were the same things these black filmmakers were doing. And it, it, it's incredible to me, as in doing some of this research, you find out stuff like, you know, the studios had to be kicked out of Germany in 1942 by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, well, then, again, why not turn to the black audience and just reap some of that money? You know, and they just, no, that's okay. Then you spend, you spend a lot of time, I'm going to jump to the 70s now, because we spend a lot of time there, because they're, I think starting with Shaft, I believe, was the first time the studios thought, oh, we can 
there's money to be made here in these black films and black audiences. And most people associate with Shaft as kind of the start of the black exploitation era. So there's a lot to unpack there because a lot of things happen. And well, let's just start with that period. And, and, uh, how important was Shaft at that time? First of all, before we go any further, I want to thank you for calling this an essay because that's exactly what I call it. I was saying this is going to be as much an essay as it is, you know, a historical overview of, of these films this period because otherwise I think it's something that anybody can make. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shot the Harry Belafonte thing and I cut together and I was trying to figure this thing out. So I cut together as kind of this sort of mini biography of Harry Belafonte Mm-hmm. 20 minutes long. And the note I wrote to myself was amiable, prosaic. But I thought, hey, I'm a good enough writer. I can skate on this, right? So I just sent it to Fincher to look at it. And he goes, it's fine. Go, oh, man. Okay. <laughs> Busted. And he goes, listen, this is what you have to ask yourself. What is it you can bring to this that nobody else can? We can just go make an American Masters about this. We can go do that. But I don't think that's what you want. Don't waste your time. Don't waste the audience's time. Anybody could do what you've done, what you've given me. The writing's better than it would be for most other people, but so what? What is it you have to offer that nobody else does? So mm. I thought, well, again, going, what is it? Let's just boil this right down and get to Harry Belafonte and just show what an extraordinary camera presence he was. That in this movie, Island in the Sun, he goes out and gets a suit that's two sizes too big. So you can see it's a hand me down suit. Because in those, in the piff, in the, 40s and 50s, even janitors look beautifully tailored. So he said, I want audiences to see this guy and go, what's wrong with this picture? And if you look at that suit he's wearing, it doesn't fit. And that's Harry's own choice. That's Harry understanding the dynamics of the cinema and making this work for him. So that was something I did there. And then I start the movie. The the film was really about the period 1968 to 1978, which begins with Night of the Living Dead a black man with a gun saving white people from the end of the world. And his race is never mentioned because it wasn't written for a black actor. Mm. So if you see that movie, you kind of go, that to me was as shocking as anything else, because seeing as a kid, like the sure I saw it two years later, that driving with my family when everybody was asleep. So I'm alone thinking, I imagine this whole thing, but mm-hmm. you're watching it. And the thing that's this tension that's going off for you. If you're a certain age, watch that movie going, why is this black guy being allowed to live for so long? <laughs> being allowed to live for so long. Wow. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Of course. Absolutely. The same age. So you, you watch that movie and you go, what's going on here? And nobody's talking about him being black. Nobody said color in right. the movie. Nobody said black. All right. those things, all those trigger words that would have been these things that set things off in 1968 or 1970 when I saw it. Exactly. Why is this stuff not happening? Wow. And then we, oh, yeah, and it was this movie I'd heard about from my sister's boyfriends who were all, you know, self-proclaimed revolutionaries who would go, see, that's why he died. See, parents helped them white people. That's what happened to you. See, see, that's what Malcolm said. So, so, and, and wow. but for that movie to come out in 68, which is the year that Dr. King was assassinated and coming after assassinations yeah. of Medgar Evers and, and Malcolm X, it had an impact with the black community. It, it was a, for me, a detonation that, Movie's mm. interesting to me in a way that they had not been before. And so that happens. And then also you've got Uptight, which is this peculiar, astonishing movie about a heist set during 
the country reeling from the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. It's a movie I think, God, I cannot imagine anybody making a movie like that today. Uh, it's, 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 Sets off, it, it, it hits so many pressure points that would have people terrified. It's a movie that's openly political, made by a studio. The first black woman to write a studio feature, Ruby D is one of the writers on this. And in his autobiography, Booker T, who did the score, calls it, he thought it was the first black exploitation movie. And, and that's, that's what people were calling it. So he got all mm. the stuff going on. And, and one of the things I think that connects all these movies for me is in so many cases, you can see it's like what you were talking about what black people seeing going to see themselves in the silence. You can right. see these black actors thrilled to be on screen with each other. I remember seeing Cotton Comes to Harlem as a kid with my dad. You could feel the jubilation. Of, I mean, these actors are just exuberant about being on screen with each other. And you pass mm-hmm. it goes from Raymond St. Jacques and Godfrey Cambridge to to Helen Williams, who got her to start working with Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater, to Cleavon Little, a Broadway actor making his film debut, and then Norman Lear and Bud York and C. Red Fox in that movie as a junk dealer and go, we got this British comedy we bought that we're thinking about doing, but what may we do with all black cast? Would you be interested? So I mean, that's all the kinds of things that the movies yeah. were setting into motion. They weren't just these big hits and they were huge hits, but they're also affecting many other parts of the culture. Yeah. Cotton comes to Harlem for me, that was my first, uh, jumping into the pool of this, you know, then my brother and I, we quoted that movie all of our lives, you know, especially the title of your documentary is, is that black enough for you? I mean, Godfrey Cambridge was so funny in that movie. And to see the two black cops as the protagonists, you know, but you were rooting for the bad guys in this, you know, uh, there were so many, so many golden moments. Red Fox was so funny. But, uh, you know, I love, uh, you know, just, all of the interactions with everybody in it, you know, it was sexy as a, you know, as a young kid, that was the first time that sex like had an, it had an impact on my brain. I'm like, Whoa, you know, what's going on with that? You know, and the white man being the foil of a joke, you know, that was, that was crazy. Like, and we laughed so hard at that. I remember it was the funniest time I've ever laughed as a kid was Cotton Cousins of Harlem. To me, that that was my first introduction to this, that film could do this. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you know, b- before that, it was, you know, Sidney Poitier was the black person in films, you know, but you never saw this, you know. One of the things I want to do with this movie, too, uh, one of the many things I want to do with it is so often when you see those clip reels of the greatest scenes of films from all time. It's my man, Godfrey. And then the Sidney Poitier, they call me Mr. Tibbs. That's the only right. thing you ever see. And you, this, all kinds of stuff you can show in Cotton Comes to Harlem. I thought we, we had the same reaction to it. Not only that, I've mm-hmm. been kind of lifted by the score. This is one of the first times I actually probably heard a wah-wah guitar and hi-hat you know, on a movie score. This is yeah. going to sound contemporary to me. And as much as I yeah, yeah. Joe Leone movies with those great Morricone scores, that was music concrete. That was basically changing what the music was going to be in movies. This was playful. That felt the kind of stuff you could listen to. And also these yeah. two black guys who were the stars of the movie, these two cops who were so beautifully dressed. I know. I know. And Kevin Lockhart and all those gorgeous double-breasted suits with the, you know, you can see how well-made they are because the buttons are all cloth covered. That was one of my first, uh, I used to do it. 
you know, still kind of do impressions when I was a kid. And Calvin Lockhart, that was one of my first ones. I remember doing his voice. You know, <laughs> he had that silky kind of voice. And Cotton comes to Harlem. One of those, those guys <laughs> who wasn't born in the United States, like Godfrey, yeah. like Rupert Cross, like Sidney Poitier. One of the sort of the Easter eggs I left in the movie is that as we're playing that song, uh, Black Enough for Me, um, mm-hmm. we show the, the credit costume designer, Anna Hill Johnstone, who the, the next year would design the costumes for The Godfather. So the mm. point was to show that she could design these costumes that were flamboyant and meant to be seen, but also could design men's wardrobe that were for guys who, who want to blend into the background. The fun of the movie was showing like the, the origin of this period and how impactful it was. And, but also, yeah. to your point, to be, be a kid being ground zero and to, it really was like having the top of your head lifted off. How is this happening? Yeah, All yeah. these right. movie and nobody's being humiliated except the white cop. Yes, exactly. And, and, and these cops are smarter than their white bosses. And 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 then I went and found the book. And the book is not playful at all. I mean, these two, it really like the uh, Chester Himes book, the novel, right? Yeah. It's, it's, again, this other astonishing story because there's so much stuff I cut out. Like Chester mm-hmm. trying to be a writer in the 30s and 40s. At one point, he becomes a publicist at Warner Brothers in the 1940s. And Jack Warner is so racist. He leaves America and goes to Paris where he writes these books that are read by Anatole Broyard, who is a black man passing for white, who's a book critic for the New York Times, who then writes about the books in the Times. They get bought and turned into movies. I mean, that alone could be its own documentary. Absolutely. You know, you forget about the effect those authors had on the black culture because there were more people read, you know, books in those days, too. I think it was more discussions, you know. But Chester Himes is certainly a giant, you know. Um, so you have Cotton Comes. Let me ask you this question. So I feel like Cotton Comes to Harlem was made for black people and black people watch it and white people still don't even know it existed, like even to this day. The point I'm trying to make in the, the movie as well is that white actors had sort of given up on playing heroes. You know, they weren't mm. they were these sufferers who were trying to basically find a way to metaphorically betray America's impotence when dealing with civil rights. And these black movies featured heroes and white audiences didn't have any other heroes to turn to. So they were coming out for these movies. I think these movies are forgotten just because so much of black culture is pushed to the margins. That's just the way this culture works. Was Cotton Comes to Harlem a crossover hit? Was, did, did white audiences go out to see it? I guarantee you that they did. I mean, because, you know, it's like Ron O'Neill says when he's talking about Superfly. We played for 20 weeks in Boston and we ran out of black people after three weeks. Right. That was Superfly. Yes. That. Yes, absolutely. These movies that were hits, I think. I'm offering the, this this idea that this concept that these black movies were reviving the idea of heroism. I mean, they go back to Birth of a Nation. It's the Klan who are the heroes. Like that caught in my throat. The Klan who are heroes who are saving white people's virtue. It's interesting when you look at it from a film perspective, because I would say the last hero on screen for white people that was a hero, not anti-hero, was probably when John Wayne did True Grit in 1968 or whatever. You know, you that was and that was kind of you know whatever. But that type of role white people were kind of through with, I guess, for a while. You know, young white people who were through with it. I mean, John Wayne was at that point trying to play, you know, urban comps. People forget McHugh <laughs> and those other movies where he's like walking around, you know, trying to figure out which hand to put the gun in because they're too small for him. These little revolvers, God sakes. Uh, 
But you know, <laughs> like Steve McQueen and Paul Newman and Warren Beatty and Dustin yeah. Hoffman and Al Pacino, Gene Hackman, they weren't playing conventional heroes. Uh, the point I make in the movie is that the only hero in American film culture that people were going to see was James Bond. I mean, he found the last sort of unambiguous hero. And even in films like Cotton Comes to Harlem, where these cops are b- working outside the margins of the law, and my feeling is that that movie kind of invented the archetype for the buddy comedy, but that's another conversation too, is that sure. it's the buddy cop movie, I mean to say. What that movie does is, is place these, these guys who, in the books, that's what I was going to say about Chester Himes, in the books, they're anti-heroes. They're Old Testament right. who will wreak justice on anybody who gets in their way. And what Ossie Davis and Arnold Pearl do in the movie and adapting it is make it folkloric and give it this playful spirit. I mean, it's a Harlem where, unlike the Harlem of the book, where the whole thing seems to take place at night, it's all daylight and cotton comes to Harlem. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. it's played for comedy. And I think Ossie Davis realized that black audience, audiences in general want to see good humored heroism from, from and, and not sufferers, not people who are sacrificing Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that sort of sense of, of, of bemuse and amuse performance is something that starts in cotton comes to Harlem and then takes us to shaft where he has this jaundice, but amused view about the culture. It takes us to superfly. I mean, the people who could really put this across in performance terms, I think took something for Ossie Davis, the template he set out in cotton comes to Harlem. So I agree with you that it is an important movie for a lot of reasons, but I think, so many mm-hmm. of these movies, and not just Cotton Comes to Harlem, but you know, Symbiopsycho Taxi Blast. I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, you, you, you were anticipating my uh, transitions here. Like, so we also have a black indie. I'll call. I'm, I'm using this term. I know it's not that accurate, but let's call it a black indie. I think you, you're getting to an important point that a lot of important yeah. movies in this period were done independently. Yes. Back. Uh, Symbiopsycho Taxi Blast. Melvin Van Peebles. Yes. Uh-huh. In fact, even Superfly was produced independently and picked up by a studio. So I think mm. the black indie idea, and to your point about black indies, Milton Van Peebles did something that he understood he had to do, which is to say, if he would have just treat Sweet Sweetback as a black film, it would probably have been ignored. So he turned it mm. cultural phenomenon, rated X by an all-white jury. Well, that wasn't true because he never sent it to the jury to be rated. Mm-hmm. As he told me, he didn't have the $300, but he said, that way I can say it. And it becomes this political statement, the X rating, because he recognized, and again, this is the spirit of sort of black entrepreneurship, black excellence you were talking about. But he said, I can use this as part of the marketing. That a white jury said this movie is, was, was to be rated X. And in fact, it was never rated X, but because he recognized that the X rating had not been copyrighted by the MTA. Mm. So he creates a whole new culture of the double and the triple X. Because as I say in the film, you never heard of a double R or a triple PG-13. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's all this, this kind of invention. The Black Indies, I think, is a very important thing because that's what Oscar Michel and all those guys, they were making Black independent films too. So I think that has always, and that's the thing that never really gets reported on. There's so, you have so much amazing footage from films that I would have thought would have been lost, you know? And what really is interesting is how much uh, just gritty realism and sex and things were the explicit nature of some of the storytelling and some of this stuff, which, you know, as a kid, I couldn't go see that stuff. So, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't know it existed. I was too young. You know, we didn't get a chance to even know it existed, you know, and to see it in all its glory is kind of a revelation as well. Was part of, 
I'm sure part of what you're doing is showing to the world, by the way, this existed. This is, you know, <laughs> this is what we did. You know? Oh no, it's that thing where, you know, black sexuality was, as you were saying, Yes. Uh, in, in the cotton of Harlem, your fear is that's going to be turned into a joke on the black woman. So when it's not, right. when she turns the tables, and then when Melvin Van Peebles makes a movie about black sexuality and all the that are asked when you make black people sexual beings, uh, that's something that comes solely out of independence and independent thinking. And you brought up something really interesting a few minutes ago. You started talking about agency. One of the things that runs through the movie, and, and I'm sure you noticed it, is Sam Jackson says, I want to see a black cowboy. And Margaret Avery says that. And as often as not, they'd be in these, one of these movies like Harlem on the Range. That's a Western and a comedy and a murder mystery and a musical. Because, you know, you have to cram all this stuff in because who knows if you'd ever get to make another movie. But right. you never got to see black people on horses because what does that connote? Freedom. <laughs> That's, that, you're talking about emasculating black people. There's no better way to do that than to not put them on a horse. Because that that presumes they can ride off in whatever direction they want mm. to for at least 10 minutes before they get shot mm. off the horse. But so you never saw that. And I can tell you going to Mississippi where there's nothing else to do but watch people on horses in the 70s, um, that if you grew up with family who had farms, you saw black people on horses. Right. So have this taken away from you in, in, in terms of what the black contribution to that society represented. Because if you remember, the word... There's a difference between being called a cowboy and a cowpoke. If you were a cowboy, you were a black person. You didn't want somebody tracking cow dung into your house. That wasn't meant as a compliment to be called a cowboy. And so that's why I, it's, I put in the footage from Gordon Parks, The Learning Tree, of that gorgeous sunrise of those people and the horses rescuing those kids. That was beautiful. And this Gordon Parks, who's from Kansas, wanting to show that black people had mastered riding horses and it shouldn't be a big thing to see them on horses. I mean, it's so much fun talking to you about this because you're touching on all these things that I wanted people to see in the movie. Yeah. You're getting all of them. So yeah, I mean, because, well, also, when you think about how powerful the medium of film is in not just reflecting culture, but in shaping culture, like both of those things are true. Because, like, and here's where it really hit me. When I think of Buck and the Preacher, uh, and I remember... Uh, uh, Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte were on the show Soul. That was the, the, the oh, yeah. oh, yes. And they were talking about that film and the making of it and how important it was for them, for black people to do this. And we had a, you know, we existed back then and all that. And it's all this empowerment. And then to see in, in here that they were disappointed by black people not supporting it. And, and Harry Belafonte's comment on it, which was to me, this hits you in the gut where it's like, that and I'm paraphrasing, but that even black people believe the myth that they didn't exist, in, you know, in the old west. So it's like this seems fake to them, right? It's like no, you know, it's like that's how good the whitewashing of history can be through media and film. To me, when I saw that, I'm like, oh man, that is amazing. You know, I mean, who knows why people don't show up to movies? You know, who knows? But. You know, um, I thought that was an interesting observation. I thought that was particularly heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking, yeah. Because to hear him say that, and he's also probably the young black artists at the time wanting to reject their country roots, yeah. that seemed particularly sad to me. But that's a, a, a message that's been so, I mean, there's so much calculation in, it, in a really insidious way to say black people don't belong on horses. I remember 
when Paul Thomas Anderson was doing interviews for Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. he would talk about the book character, Don Cheadle. Say, I want to put him in that Western stuff because, you know, the black cowboy is absurd to me. And I'm thinking, this is a guy who grew up on movies and loves them more than anybody and is a gifted filmmaker. And that's the part of the message that he absorbed too. That a black cowboy is absurd. Mm. You know, you got somebody who's considered to be, you know, and not considered to be, but one of the greatest living filmmakers making that kind of statement. Yeah. I'm a student of film and of history. And I thought, no, wait a second. That's not. Yeah. I mean, 70, there's a gap band who are wearing cowboy outfits. So even in black contemporary culture, there were cowboys. So how can you say something like that? Yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, the uh, extinguishing of culture and that kind of stuff that has been done. But, you know, also contribution has been extinguished, too. Like you, your film brilliantly points out just all the artistic breakthroughs that happened in many of these films, you know, that never get the never get the flowers for it right you know um and you see it sometimes they're subtle sometimes they're blatant you know but it is amazing to me and i don't want to torture the harlem globetrotters comparison (laughs) but it's 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 the equivalent of like going seeing them all the stuff that they did in those old games is now part of all-star weekend yeah, you know, right. everything they did is now the fundamental of basketball. At least in basketball, you cannot take away from the fact that it's black people doing it. But, you know, if we, we can go a step further and we'll ask ourselves who owns the teams and there's not too many black people. Uh, and this is the, the interesting thing that happened in these films, too. You know, is in many cases, the actors were there would author their own roles. I remember talking once a few times to Dick Anthony Williams, who was this terrific actor who uh, played Pretty Tony in the Mac, but also as the cop, the driver who turns out to be uh, the cop at the end of Dog Day Afternoon. Incredibly talented and such a good guy. I remember remember asking him about playing Pretty Tony and he goes, well, I want to make that guy kind of like, you know, the urban version of Edward D. Robinson and Little Caesar, but also, and then with that kind of thing. So he was the black contemporary archetype of somebody who that people have seen in those Warner movies of the thirties. Mm-hmm. I love to feel real in the way that dialogue felt. And he says, so I just would improvise and come with things that made sense for these characters to say, I mean, gosh, I mean, again, I'm so happy talking to you about this later because you're touching on so many of the things I want this movie to get at. Mm-hmm. Again, you just, you're bringing a black independent film and we can go back to the symbiopsychotaxi plasm, which I saw that a few years ago for the first time. And I was happy that I did, you know, just to know what it was. But yeah, you saw it. What well, hit you? Well, I, just the experimental nature of it, you know, that somebody like I don't I have no idea what it was, what it was, you know, even con- watching it in today's light, you know, and looking at it. I was looking at it kind of as an historical document more than anything else, you know. But uh, I was fascinated in terms of the making of it and what the person was thinking and all that kind of stuff. I think it was on that, there was the uh, channel called Filmstruck. It was an app that they would show a lot of these things. I think now it's Criterion uh, app. And uh, they were showing like some Charles Burnett and all kinds of good stuff, you know. And that was one of them. And I was like, you know, I've never seen this before. Let me look at it. But it was, it was, I found it real fascinating as kind of a, a dip back in time, I guess you could say. Well, it was certainly a social and artistic experiment, but also you look at that film and you go, you can't not think about Sacha Baron Cohen or Mm. Eric Andre. 
And, 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 and when you see that film, I think, well, if it didn't directly inspire these guys, if there's something, it put something in the water that led to the flowering of these, these guys using film. I mean, you can say it's, it's kind of a prank, but it's also a way to get people to ask questions about themselves. They wouldn't normally ask if these kinds of catalysts weren't set before them. Mm-hmm. Also a filmmaker who grown up as an actor who wasn't being able being allowed, I mean, to say to tap into any of his potential as an actor because of the really the lack of imagination towards black actors in the movie business in the forties and fifties. So he said to himself, well, what do I do? How do I make this work? Again, that critical question, what's missing? Why don't I make a film that's both uh, a fiction film and a documentary and Mm -hmm. reacting to uh, a director, not knowing what he wants, but trying to make something that's different and having them react to me both as a kind of a failure as a director, but also as a black authority figure Mm -hmm. in a, venue where that kind of thing isn't seen and people don't know what to, to make of it. And it's an astonishing film. I mean, we're talking about the before times. I, this was a film I'd heard about for years and because it never played Detroit, obviously, where I grew up, I never saw it. And just another of these strange happenstance, I ended up being on a flight with sitting next to Steve Buscemi. And it somehow came up. He goes, oh, I know Bill Greaves. Do you want to see it? Oh, wow. He goes, well, he's going to be in LA next week when I'm here. Why don't we all get together? I'll have him bring it out. So Bill Greaves comes to my house. Wow. We have these two VHS tapes. Two, because you know, it was too I long thought for one. I projector, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I still have that. No, because yeah. VHS or, you know, for the kids, um, home video, non-streaming. And so we watch it and then we talk about it. I said, oh, and I just get pepper my questions. He goes, it's such a weird experience to try to talk about it now because it's hard for me. He said, it's hard for me to watch, yeah. and I feel some emotions I felt when we were making it. Yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. You know, there's an in, it's an invisibility thing, and not getting credit for something that is is a um, is a wound for you know somebody who's obviously brilliant and operating on a different level. You know, he do, he doesn't get to be Cassavetes. Nothing is Cassavetes, but you know what I mean. You know, he doesn't get that cultural cachet. He doesn't get to be Cassavetes or Shirley Clark for that matter. I mean, those mm-hmm. independent filmmakers who were getting the credit for, you know, changing the way film was regarded. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think writ large, because he never revealed to any of these people that he was working with what he was doing to them. Yeah. I have his widow saying, you know, she, that he was torn because he was trying to make this thing work to force people to ask questions about why they do what they do. But he also wanted to make a good movie yeah. and to get the of their best performances. So how do you reconcile those things? And there is this aching ambition at the heart of this thing that is both artistic and social experiment. Um, And clearly there wasn't the language to try to describe or to really build a case for what this movie was or or what it was doing. Mm -hmm. Even though I go into a bit of early film history, I try to, to... centralized to really focus on 68 through 78 because you know i just remember as we were making this movie a couple of years ago there's an entertainment weekly special issue 100 years of black film and i thought wow i can't get 10 years in two hours (laughs) this episode is brought to you by hyundai what does your next drive look like running between meetings maybe a getaway with the whole family 
Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's nice to be reminded of how big of a blazing star Pam Greer was during those days, too, and how influential she was and she was had so many firsts, you know. Um, when you think about that, you know, like it's easy, it, no slight against her, but it may be easier to remember Diana Ross and Lady Sings the Blues or Mahogany and that type of thing because she was already a big star. But Pam Greer was different. The movies made her a big star, you know. <laughs> and it was those types of roles that, and she was a badass, you know, she was her own type of thing. And I feel like that's never quite been repeated. I mean, which is fascinating to me. Like how could something so successful never followed up upon? That happens in any number of these cases, you know, I mean, that I think that's unfortunately what this era is about too, that, you know, Pam Greer showed it, proved herself to be a movie star. Yep. Absolutely. And Toni Morrison said when she was talking to me, you know, she's more than a badass, you know what I mean? This performance in coffee is really becomes a kind of metaphorical mm-hmm. about all women of color have to endure. Yeah. You can't take credit for this, that you finally end up alone. Yeah. And, 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 and the point that Tony was making is that you believe that performance. And if anybody understands the impact that seeing a woman on the screen can have, it's the author of the bluest eye. So as she talked about that, you go, well, no, of course. I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. That was also, you think not only is it, hugely sort of successful in pop terms, but there's no Charlie's Angels about the example that Pam Greer sets, you know? I mean, that that whole popularization of, really, there's no Terminator. Alien. You you think about what she did, and again, this is what we're talking about here, about how integral all these moments of exploration and achievement were during this 10 year mm-hmm. period and, and, and or neatly brushed off to the side or just evoked in this kind of reductive canon of black exploitation when it was clearly more to the movies than that. I mean, 1972 being the year of these Oscar nominations, it's still the year that the only black woman nomination for best original screenplay mm-hmm. happened. This movie's going to be dated. I mean, not in the next 10 years. I'm not, in fact, in the Entertainment Weekly. When D. Reese was nominated for writing, adapting, Mudbound, they said that she was the first black woman to be nominated. I went, they didn't even get mm-hmm. that right. I mean, so this is how black cultural history is treated in, in these so-called organs that are there to sort of tell the world about entertainment. And one of the missions I felt I had to take on is to make this as much of a I think a social documentary as a, a cultural documentary. I think you succeeded in that. Do you have any? Do you have any personal favorites from that period? Films that really are just have stuck with you for whatever reasons. Gosh, well, there's so many in there. I mean, one of the ones just because it's such a great story is the spook who sat by the door. Just because it's a movie I saw as a kid, and as I mentioned in the film, 
you heard that line, you know, a black man with a mop and a pail could go anywhere. I mean, that was a line to me that was as, as <laughs> enduring as, uh, you know, <laughs> this could be, this is good as this is the beginning of a beautiful, this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship right. or, you know, an offer you couldn't refuse. I mean, for me, it lives in that same world as those. I remember when that line was spoke to the movie, it's that thing you couldn't hear the movie for two minutes because people were laughing and screaming and talking back at the screen with such fervor because they felt like a movie had finally touched on something that made sense to them. And, and, and so that movie did that for me, but also seeing that was directed by Ivan Dixon. Hogan's heroes. Yeah. Yeah. Has small part in raising in the sun. Mm-hmm. I vaguely right. remember. That's right. And then, you know, uh, I think I saw like a, one of those late night movie things, this movie, um, nothing but a man where it's him and, and Abby Lincoln, we show the footage, you go, oh my God, these are two movie yeah. stars. Oh, but it's black people. So they don't really get to be movie stars. But when I met Ivan, because I put together this thing where we could sh- we showed the spooky set by the door at the LA Film Festival in 2004, mm-hmm. I said, you have to tell me a story of this movie because you were doing Hogan's Heroes, then you weren't. He goes, oh my God, listen, if I'm doing Hogan's Heroes and I realize, you know, because I'm the black guy, I can never leave the uh, basement. You know, I'm the black guy. So there's no, there's no way you can explain me being out in Germany. You cannot hide in plain sight. That, yeah. So I'm in the basement doing this thing and I'm, you know, making a pretty good living, but, you know, vomiting all the way to the bank. And I'm sitting at Al Ruddy's house for these Academy screens because Al Ruddy, who produced The Godfather, co-created Hogan's Heroes. So he would have mm-hmm. these, these Oscar circuit screenings at his house. He says, so I'm sitting in the back row with the editor of Hogan's Heroes. And I said, Michael Kahn? He goes, yes, Michael Kahn. And he said, Michael says, Mike says, well, listen, when you make your movie, let me know and I'll cut it for you. So Michael Kahn, for those who don't know, has gone on to cut every Steven Spielberg movie for the past 30 years. Mm. He started working with Ivan Dixon on Trouble Man and the spook who sat by the door, which, I mean... And the story of the movie is, is pretty terrific. The CIA is forced to make an affirmative action hire. They, and this is probably fuel more some January 6th kind of things. They hire a black man to be window dressing. He's put in this job where he, he basically gives tours to foreign dignitaries and works, you know, he's the head of uh, reproductive services. So in other words, he works the Xerox machine at the CIA. So he's the spook who's at by the door. And so when mm. he just, he just disappears one day. They just go up oh, another drug related casualty. He takes all his CIA training and builds a team of revolutionaries to city by city take over the United States government. It's, I mean, it's this kind of wish fulfillment drama that everybody I know we saw. We were just, I think we just went and sat through it three or four times and loved it. There's a movie I couldn't get in here. Uh, that if I can talk about it briefly, that mm-hmm. first brush with fame. Uh, it's the summer of 75, so I guess I'm just studying high school or something. And um, I'm with a friend of mine in downtown Detroit, and we're trying to figure out what to do to get out of the heat. I guess go to a movie. And this little guy walks past. I remember this. He had a leather hat, like a slouch hat, a leather hat with a matching bag and a shoulder bag and shoes. In 1975 in Detroit, I cannot imagine any man just like that. I don't care what. <laughs> what's going on here? Uh-huh. Now I realize I knew who it was. I go, "Are you Derville Martin?" He goes, "You guys know who I am." We go. Wow. He goes, "You want to come to see my movie?" And then we go, "Okay." Now you know, in the real world, we'd probably be thrown into the back of a panel truck and never be heard from. Right. 
Hey kids, want some candy? Yeah, let's go. Let's go to the van. I got a movie here. He walks just around the corner and says movie theater and says, and walks us past the ticket taker and goes, These guys are with me. And then he's looking at them and he's looking at Derville Martin like, and who are you? He walks us in and goes, Boys, enjoy the movie. And he leaves, and the screen goes dark, and it's Dolomite. Wow. Derville Martin directed and co-starred under. In fact, in the movie, My Name is Dolomite, he's played by Wesley Snipes. But, you know, he was in a bunch of these yeah. movies. And still today, the best meeting with a famous person I've ever had in my entire wow. life. Basically, we had, they kicked us out and they stopped showing the movie. So, yeah, it was pretty, that was pretty wonderful. That's amazing. I think for me, besides Gotham Comes to Harlem, of course, because it was so funny, was uh, Cooley High. There was something about Cooley High, like, once again, that being a black film, we didn't see this type of film that, you know, slice of life where, you know, that American graffiti type of thing, the soundtrack and everything, you know. I mean, as a kid, I just, it was, I can't even describe to you how I fell in love with that movie. The feelings were so intense, you know. And every time I see Glenn Turman, I feel bad because I feel like I still want to gush about it. And Glenn, he's he's been done with that for years, right? You know, <laughs> he, like, he was done once he was finished shooting, but it's like, to me, it's like, I'm, but I'm still in love with this film, you know. Uh, I think it's one of the films that has meant the most to me. And it's probably the reason why I'm in showbiz is because of Cooley High. You know, the fact that he was, you know, that, that movie. Wow, really? So that was, what was, did it make you want to, to be an, an, a writer, director? Because well, it was the, the protagonist, you know. Okay. The fact that that's what you can do, you know, because the world around you is, you know, people selling drugs, you know, it's this and there's crime, you know, and there's, you know, running from the police or whatever. And the fact that he's this, the protagonist is a guy who wears glasses. Like I wore glasses back then, you know, he's smart. He wants something different. You know, he's gonna, he ends up writing this film that we're watching basically. Right. You know, um, you know, and to me that it, I connected with that character, you know, in so many ways, you know, I was too shy to get the girl like he did back then, but you know. That's such a great performance too, because this thing I mentioned to him, we were shooting the interview, I said, because it's just too much stuff to try to pack in. Well, I like the performance is that he's really kind of gawky and can't control his body. And by the boat going to the cemetery, he's walking, man. He goes, exactly what I was doing with it. He goes, so so all these things I've been thinking about this movie for 50 years are right. right. Yeah. And, but it's, it's all these things you're talking about. It's Motown music. Yeah. This person says in the movie, imagine a movie where Motown music is being played around black people. I mean, yeah. that, that felt like, wow. Yeah. But everybody I knew who was black listened to, especially in Detroit, listened to Motown, but also seeing those thugs with their processes and the do rags tied around their yes. head. Yes. Yes. And my parents were from Chicago, you know, so, you know, the, that was the feeling too, you know, and everything. It's amazing. Um, last thing, and I appreciate you talking. I know this is something we could talk about forever, you know, <laughs> there's so much in here. Um, you know, Cooley High also, you know, the the music, of course, in that, you know, celebrating with Motown and everything, but music was so important to this period too. And the intersection of music and the movies and some of the putting out the music first as a thing to do, you know, um, Superfly to me, I always knew Curtis, like Curtis Mayfield to me 
was always more important than the movie for some reason, you know, <laughs> like I love Superfly. And as a kid, I never even saw the movie, but I love Superfly. I couldn't get enough because you know, my parents wouldn't let me go see movies like that, you know, but, you know, it was in the culture. We all knew what Superfly was, but I, you know, it's still Curtis Mayfield, his contribution to that period, you know, it was so important in my mind, you know, of course, Isaac Hayes and of course, you know, some of the others, but Curtis Mayfield, I'm so happy that he's represented in him. How do you not? I mean, that's five soundtracks. In addition to the 15 other albums he made in that 10 year period, he did five soundtracks for which are arguably the greatest other for the greatest effects <laughs> of the era. Spark, let's do it again. Claudine. And to your point about Superfly, I actually know a lot of people who think they've seen the movie because they've heard the music. Yes. You go, Oh wait, I didn't see it. But because yeah. he had this gift, for like Harry Belafonte, writing all these songs from the point of view of the character. Right. We're seeing the movie. In fact, maybe the movie that you think of as you're hearing that soundtrack is better than the real movie itself. Right. Exactly. It exists too, not only as living in those characters' heads, but as, as a response to what the perceived message of the movie is. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of another case for that. I mean, I, as far as I'm concerned, I always stack Curtis Mayfield up against John Williams in terms of creating the greatest that era and I'm, I'm happy to have that argument with anybody because again i think we're saying i remember you watched soul train and you yeah. see the the ads where i was growing up for the records being sold at sears the records that weren't special that week yes by soundtrack was like wait there's a new curtis mayfield record from a movie it's not even a fair comparison the john williams uh curtis mayfield one because john williams is score mainly but i mean Curtis Mayfield's score and songs, <laughs> you know. Thank you. The thing. There's more to that. No slight against John Williams. He's brilliant, you know, and his stuff was revolutionary in some way. Jaws and Star Wars notwithstanding, you know. But uh, we're t it's a whole different cultural thing what Curtis Mayfield was doing and to have the identity as an artist, you know, at the same time. And, and you look at, you look at Curtis Mayfield, look how music has changed too. Here's a guy, he's wearing glasses, you know, he's not like, this uh, chiseled hunk type, you know, he's not wearing leather, you know, he's like, he's like an intellectual making music, you know, it's kind of interesting. Oh, we can sit and go over the, you know, some of the lyrics from those, from those songs. And yeah. there's, you know, journal entries by, by Sartre. It's like, it's beautiful. I mean, yeah. soulful. It's epistemological. Yes. It's about black paranoia yes. and black ambition, but right. also ambition of this songwriter. And the, 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 these these scores and do so much. Yeah, and, they do. And for again, for the 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 head of the studio to said to me, because Curtis Mayfield owned his own label, we couldn't tell him to when to release the record, and he didn't realize that you didn't do that beforehand. You know, the, Curtis Mayfield was the one who made me want to see Superfly because I didn't know anybody in that movie yeah. was before I saw it. But also, too, I knew enough about music to know that Curtis Mayfield, without Curtis Mayfield, who in addition to all those things you're talking about is a black man singing in a falsetto. Mm -hmm. The example of Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye, mm -hmm. sure, doesn't decide, well, I'm going to sing in my natural range, which is a falsetto. Before so Bailey, yeah. He's singing baritone. But mm -hmm. yeah, Bailey, absolutely. For Curtis Mayfield, what he did was sing protest songs, mm -hmm. of producer. And that's mm -hmm. what Marvin Gaye did as well. Mm -hmm. And you can't, for me, I can't separate what's going on from what Curtis Mayfield was doing after mm -hmm. he left the I mean, and, and, and that's for me also the fun of doing this movie is that it's not just about the movies. It's about 
black cultural phenomenology. Mm-hmm. How Curtis Mayfield leads to Marvin Gaye, leads to Curtis Mayfield, mm-hmm. leads back to Marvin Gaye. And, and then, and this heads out, out Ennio Morricone leads to Isaac Hayes, mm-hmm. who leads after. And so in addition to the talking about what's happening on screen, it also gives me a chance to talk about this music thing and then to go finally from Shaft to Saturday Night Fever. And a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to do this, we went to the, and, uh, the Indie Memphis Film Festival because Willie Hall lives there. And Willie Hall was the drummer in the Bar Kays when he was 19. Wow, the Bar Kays, yeah. Big stinks and shafts, you know, to that backbeat. And I said, you got to tell me because because he said when he saw the movie, he goes, I didn't realize until I saw your movie that Saturday Night Fever stole what we did. He said, but you're right. He said, because Isaac Hayes gave me a metronome mm-hmm. when we were recording this soundtrack. He gave me a metronome so I knew what a click track was. Right. So every night watching that 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 bar go back and forth across the red light. So when we went to the studio, I didn't have to look up. I'd already absorbed the click track. And every backbeat in the shaft, in the in the, the movie version of the shaft score is coordinated to go with Richard Roundtree's footsteps. Right. Like in Saturday Night Fever. Because there is the version of the soundtrack that's in the movie versus the one that was on record, which is a much more polished, slick version. I didn't like the movie version better. It's kind of raw. It's got these great sort of cymbal crashes at the end of the song instead yeah. of, sort of the, the stop. Um, and I got to mention, I said, I love the way I said, nobody has to crash somewhere like you do. And he's just kind of burst in the laughter. And I said, but also if you're listening to that, for me, this is a, I wasn't able to get into the film. You can hear a little bit of Peter Gunn, uh, from the way the 16th sure. season, and also some Norman Woodfield. He goes, Oh, I'm, he said, I, Isaac Hayes worshiped Norman Woodfield. And that definitely was an influence what he was doing. So again, there's so much stuff that I wasn't able to include that I had written this book. Yeah. I would do, but at least I get to talk to you about it and get some of this stuff out. It feels like. <laughs> and falsetto, by the way, Saturday Night Fever, uh, the Bee Gees is all falsetto. Ah, 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 and by the ah, way, they also, <laughs> they also in falsetto in the mid 70s. Before that, they didn't. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. And by the way, that was awesome too you know i'm a big fan of that as well you know like they both can be good but we just need to know there's something game first you know absolutely Um, yeah Uh, um let me ask you this um is there because there's so much gold in here and first of all the first question i have (laughs) is how did you get all of this footage like i i'm shocked some of this footage even exists like did you have to was that process did that process take a long time hunting down some of this was it uh, how available was it? A lot of it, and it looks good too. Thank you. I mean, that that was just you know, God, having such a great you know technical group, I just, having everybody correct all these images. A lot of it is on these home video things that have to be cleaned up because right. you know, if it's on the mainstream films we had, and they were in bad shape, then they were supposed to be restored for four K. You can only imagine how bad some the black films look. Right, and just looking and finding the right pieces, but you know this is where having a great team comes into play because okay. Doyle found that great piece of film where Dr. King is talking about seeing a movie, yeah, in a third run theater in a yeah. color because black people didn't have access. Yeah, so fascinating. We'd have to wait a couple of months for whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it took a long time to do all that stuff, but you know. Because, and I guess you probably had this thing over in your part of town too. We had this thing over here called the pandemic. It kind of shut down shooting for a while. We were supposed to start shooting 
in May of 2020, a week, almost a year. What they gave me a chance to do is look for stuff and write. And I wrote and wrote and wrote. I'm not kidding. I probably wrote, and I'm not exaggerating because I've got the notebooks on my feet to prove it, about 10 different versions of this film. And then still, the first cut was almost three and a half hours mm-hmm. um, because it's just so much stuff. And But that's where it's so terrific having Steven Soderbergh, who, in addition to shooting films, he also edits his films. He goes, this is great stuff, but, you know, at a certain point, you got to cut stuff out. Yeah. People, you want this thing to, to, to do this thing you talked about. And the thing I talked about, and I, let me ask you if you think it's here in the movie. Sure. Every five minutes, I want you to see something and go, wait, what? Yeah. In fact, you know, there's an argument to be made. This could have been like a five part type of Netflix duck type of thing, you know, uh, which they certainly do too, you know. Um, my Here's the second part of this question is, how can, is there a way to set up screenings of these things? You know, like Elvis Mitchell, can you please help to, for the world to see these films? Is there a way to do that? Like, are we just left with these fragments? But is, do these films exist in their entirety? Um, is there, like, I honestly, if you told me, Larry Wilmer, every, every month I'm going to have a screening of one of these things. You know, for, I'm like done. How many people do you want me to bring? Like I'm there. How many people to make this work? I need 150. Yeah, let's do this. Every month we can do this. Something. Done. I mean, I would love to be able to do that, um, but you know, I'm trying to keep going. What Steven Soderbergh, I think, laughingly called my career, and it took me 23 years to get this made. But to be honest <laughs> with you, I mean, I think it's just it got to be too sort of complicated with clearances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. But a lot of these films are around. I mean, I, I hate to plug other streaming services, but there's some to be found on Amazon. There's some mm-hmm. like Criterion Channel, which you mentioned before. Because a friend of mine called me and said, you know that Black Rodeo is on Criterion Channel? Really? I love that movie. Because again, mm-hmm. about cowboys. In 19... 19- yeah. There's a documentary called Black Rodeo about a rodeo in Harlem. Well, thank you for uh, putting this all in one place where we can... Uh, see some of this. Before we go any further, I have to ask you, do you love the uh, the Richard Pryor line of film criticism? Yeah. Oh, no, wait. The, can I do it, please? It is, because uh, <laughs> I, I know where you're going with this, right? Yeah. It's uh, from bi- some bi- Bicentennial Negro. Is that what you're talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Where, okay, this sums up everything, you guys. <laughs> so, and by the way, I laughed at that at the time. So I love that you put that in there. So I, I'm glad that I was able to laugh contemporaneously at this joke, too, as well as looking oh, back. Yeah. So Richard Pryor is talking about the movie Logan's Run, which, you know, is a futuristic movie. I think is where uh, no one over 30 could live like you had until 30. Like, it was something like that, right? It's absolutely. And yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. Anyhow. It was a big sci-fi movie at the time. <laughs> Richard Pryor's observation was that there were no black people in Logan's Run. He said, white folks weren't planning us, us to even be here in the future. <laughs> you know? I mean, it was so hilarious. And he wasn't not, he was not wrong. I mean, it was so blatant. Like, like this, the, the lack of self-consciousness by white filmmakers is so, it just comes out in full force in Logan's Run. Like, so... Black people aren't even in the future for you motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> like it was the same thing with the with the time machine, you know. 
when because uh, my brother and I used to joke about that the uh, the one from the early sixties to George Powell one, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Where yeah, where you can make the argument maybe the Morlocks, <laughs> you know, where the black people <laughs> lived in the mountains, wherever. That's what <laughs> you know. The Morlocks quote, you know, they gave them big lips and big noses. Like that didn't that didn't cross us, <laughs> you know, that didn't get past us. Like we saw that. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. We know what you're talking about here. The niggas live in the mountains and try to kill the white people and they eat them. We got it. We we get what you're saying. Here. Yeah, yeah. Y'all, y'all is tasty. That's soiling green is white people. No, uh, what we the joke we used to make when I was a kid was. So let me get this straight. You'll be able to smoke in the future, but there won't be any black people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yep, there you go. Well, thank you so much, Elvis. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Is that black enough for you guys? The line from Cotton Comes to Harlem. Is that black enough for you? Yeah, uh, that's my little guy for Cambridge. And by the way, as a resource, all you uh, film lovers out there, because I know we have people interested in film, all that stuff, but... Go to your own film school, look these films up, watch them, enjoy them. Uh, there's so much just to love about film and there's so much connection to history too, you know, that, that is just um, really good. So anyhow, but thanks. Thanks so much, Elvis, uh, for joining me. And you guys go watch this, watch the movies, enjoy all of it. And uh, there you go. On Netflix, is that black on for you? Thanks again. <laughs> <laughs>